ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hey, Dig listeners, it's Joe Lauder here. There's a new ABC podcast that I think you should dive into and I'm really excited to share. It's one of the greatest sea survival stories in Australian history. What really happened in 1973 after a ship called the Blythe Star disappeared without a trace off the coast of Tasmania when 10 men were stranded in a life raft, left for dead? It's made and hosted by the amazing producer Pia Wersu, who you would have heard on Saving the Franklin. You can search Expanse from the Dead to find all the episodes. But to give you a taste, here's the very first one. The Southern Ocean's one of the fiercest places in the world. Winds of up to 150 kilometres an hour tear across the water, whipping up waves 10 metres high. The smell of salt water works its way into every crevice. And the air feels sharp. And out in the middle of this heaving, desolate world are 10 men in an emergency life raft. There's no light. It's black. And the raft is being hammered, getting picked up by a wave, taken to the peak of the wave, and then smashed back down into the trough. And when a storm rolls around, well, it gets even hairier. Two sides of the raft coming together and smashing into each other, and nine of us at that time, we're just getting headbutted and thrown into each other's space because we had no way to secure ourselves in the raft. And it was horrific. The biggest fear I had in those circumstances was the bottom of the raft coming apart and us falling through it to our death. Mick Dolman was pretty wet behind the ears when he went to sea with nine other crew he'd only just met. Twelve days later, he'd stumble out of the thick, savage, indifferent Tasmanian bush. Cold, hungry, dehydrated, having stared death in the face. I didn't talk about it for years and years because it was such a difficult period and I didn't want to be seen to be a storyteller. How do you look back now, Mick, on everything that happened? Well, I could say I wish it hadn't happened, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that was a good lesson in strength. What do you hope people take away from this story? I'd like them to think that I'm a man of endurance. I grew up in Australia's wild island state, Tasmania, and have spent a lot of time bushwalking, climbing, sea kayaking. And I've often wondered, when I've been outdoors, battling the elements, if everything went wrong, would I too be a person of endurance? Or would I fall apart? How many of us really know when there's nothing left to hide behind? Who do we become? I'm Pia Wersu, and this is Expanse from the Dead, the story of a doomed ship called the Blythe Star, of 10 men given up for dead. 
what happens when everything is ripped away? How do you survive the unsurvivable? For Mick, the answer to that question starts in a small town with a young woman named Joni. Inflation in Australia has soared to its highest level in 20 years. In simple terms, it means that a man receiving $100 a week this time last year would now have to receive $111 a week to maintain a comparable standard of living. The survey conducted at a Sydney school showed that Paul Hogan was even better known than the Prime Minister of Australia. Well, tomorrow, after almost 20 years of controversy and acrimonious political squabbling, Sydney's Opera House has its official opening celebrations. 1973 in Australia was the era of the Hills Hoist clothesline, of HQ Holden's and the Women's Weekly recipe for apricot chicken. Bit posh. There were also a lot of handlebar moustaches getting around. And it was the year a fiery 18-year-old from Victoria was young and in love. Okay, my name is uh, Mick Dolman. I lived in a place called Doveton, and it was a tough housing emission area with every household bursting at the seams with kids. It was a lovely place to grow up, but it was also lovely when I got out of the joint. I'm pretty familiar with this feeling. It's actually how I felt about Tassie when I left school. Couldn't wait to leave. Something about being such a small place, everyone knows everything everything, warts and all, and it can be kind of hard to escape your reputation. I don't think Joni liked me all that much because I was a bit of a, bit of a rough bugger. Joni McGrath was about to turn 17. She was the middle of six with two older brothers. Our families knew each other very well, the McGraths and the Dolmans. I avoided him for years. I just, like, they used to come to our house and as a young girl I used to go and put myself in the bedroom or go and visit a girlfriend or something. Oh, no, the dolmens are all too rough for me. I think she thought all us dolmens were mad. But I think my sister told me one day that um, Joni was asking about me, which surprised me enormously. Joni was working in a bridal shop. Think long-sleeved wedding dresses, dusky pink frilled bridesmaid dresses and brown safari suits for the men. Seriously, I've seen my parents' wedding photos. I'd seen Marie, his sister, at the shop and I said, how's Mick? I haven't seen him for such a long time. She said, oh, no, he's good. He's been at sea and, you know, he's coming home soon and what have you. And I said, oh, I'll give him my regards. Say hello to him. And I took the initiative to go and reintroduce myself to her. And I got the courage up to ask her to go out with me one time. And I said, oh, I, I, don't, oh, I, I don't know about that. I said, I'll need to ask Mum and I'll get back to you. She had to have a council meeting with her family to seek permission for me to take her out. And uh, there was a house was divided. This sounds very sort of Romeo and Juliet, Mick. <laughs> I don't think that would have been on my mind at the, uh, those days. I was, pre- I was pretty rough. This wasn't news to Joni's mum. Mum said, we all know Mick, but he's a bit rough around the edges and I'm not sure about this. So anyway, she had a meeting with my brothers and one said, absolutely no. And the other one said, oh, come on, 
he'll make sure nothing happens to her and I think you'll be right. I think I think we we'll make a good choice if we say yes. So mum agreed with my brother and said, Okay. So mum said to Mick, um, I want a home by eleven o'clock, Mick. So the jury came back and I got I got a promotion uh, on probation. So given that you were given permission on this probationary standard, where did you take her for your first date? Oh, we spared no 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 expense. It was Red Rooster or uh, <laughs> Chicken Tonight or some crappy <laughs> joint and um, it was pretty ordinary. Joni actually reckons it was the Pizza Hut in Springvale. Either way, I'm surprised he made it through probation, to be honest. Well, yeah, I did. I'd never had a pizza in my life, didn't even know what a pizza was, but he took me to the pizza shop and I thought that was just wonderful. When I did go out with Mick, I realised that he might be rough around the edges, but he was fun. He had a great personality, Mick, and he always makes you laugh and he just got the right things to say. She was such a beautiful woman that I thought to myself, how did I jag her? How the hell? We just had a great time and he had me home by 11 o'clock and the rest... Yeah, I just kept going out with him. Things were going well. Pizza Hut was doing good business or Red Rooster, Chicken Tonight, whatever it was. But then Mick got called to sea, or as he puts it. I got shanghaied, as they call it, to join the Bly Star in Hobart. The Blythe Star. A 44-metre-long steel coastal freighter chartered by the Tasmanian Transport Commission to get cargo to King Island. He packed his bags and flew to Tasmania, the small island state clinging to the skirts of mainland Australia that sits smack bang in the wild westerly winds that scream across the Southern Ocean, the Roaring Forties. I just had a real horrible feeling in my stomach, but I think that was because it was his first time at sea with me and I got used to him being around. Like, I was just just upset. All I wanted to do in my life was to be a seafarer. My dad was a seafarer and um, my father took me as a ring bolt, as it's called in maritime terms, which is basically a stowaway on the ship from Melbourne to Portland. I think he'd done that to dissuade me from wanting to be a seafarer. But all it did was convince me even more that I wanted to be a seafarer. So uh, I was young, uh, I was about 16, and um, could eat a ship. I loved them. There was really never going to be another job for Mick. I loved the camaraderie, just the fact that all grown men, young and old, and all looking after each other, making sure that uh, nobody gets hurt or injured or whatever the case may be, because you have no ambulances, you have no fire brigade, you have nothing at sea. You've got to do it all yourself. While he was sad to say goodbye to Joni, there must have been a spark of excitement landing in Hobart and heading down to Prince of Wales Bay to join the 10-man crew and ship that would be his home for the next few days. I got down to the ship and um, I got there at night. There was um, no power. 
The ship was in complete darkness. The mess room was tiny. They're all sitting in darkness <laughs> and um, I just introduced myself to them all and uh, they told me that for some reason someone's pulled the power cord and thrown it in the drink. So they had to get divers down the next day. It was just a bit mad. This seems wild to me, like something out of a movie where you're not sure if it's meant to be a comedy or not, but it kind of sounds like that was pretty standard for the Tasmanian Transport Commission. A boring fact you should know, they were actually overseen by the Tasmanian government, which is why what you're about to hear is so cooked. Cowboys, a cowboy outfit. Good morning. Hello, Colm. How are you doing? Very well. Colm Whelan has spent decades at sea on all kinds of ships. He's retired now, but we managed to track him down in a food market in Penang, Malaysia, of all places. You know, I spent about three months in Penang and three months in the Philippines enjoying my twilight years. Those transport didn't adhere to, uh, you know, all the rules and and regulations they made their own up as they went along. This is something I've heard from a lot of people, that the Tasmanian Transport Commission played pretty fast and loose back then. I'd been offered jobs there, but it was the right decision not to work there. And they had a lot of cargo to shift. In this case, farmers on King Island needed the fertiliser on board the Blythe Star like yesterday. Not to mention the beer. So the stevedores were loading her up. There was an interesting comment from one of the stevedores. He said, where's your plimsoll line on the funnel? Now, the plimsoll line is a measuring template on the side of the ship. And the plimsoll line being referred to as being on the funnel would mean that your, your ship is underwater and, it, and the, the water level is up around the funnel. It was a bit of a joke, but I didn't realise how serious a joke it was. Mick also didn't realise that the locking bars were safely packed away in storage in Melbourne so they could fit more cargo on the decks. If you're wondering what the locking bars do, they keep the hatches closed to stop water pouring into the ship if anything goes wrong, should it ever come to that. The ship sailed out of Hobart around 6.30 on Friday evening. I mean, Hobart's a beautiful uh, harbour and a beautiful place to come in and out on a ship. And I steered the ship under the bridge and we set sail and off we went. It was just another day in the life of a seafarer. Something that's inescapable for a seafarer is hierarchy. The captain's in charge. Everyone has their place and knows it. Mick? Yeah, well, his place was at the bottom of that ladder. He was brought on as the deckhand. The Blythe Star's chief in charge was Captain George Crookshank, a weather-beaten old Scotsman, by all accounts, pretty partial to whisky. He looked like a very scrawny little Scot. He wasn't a big man. He looked a bit frail, unlike Ken Jones, who was the chief mate, who stood tall and looked fit. A tough guy. The crew took turns at the wheel of the ship, swapping out every two hours. And as dawn broke on Saturday, they saw a dull day with the odd sheet of drizzle revealed from the bridge. A gentle, rolling swell, so different from the white-capped, towering waves the wind can throw up. I had a 
stint on the wheel. It was early in the morning. And then I changed shifts with uh, Mick Power. I went down and went to bed. Then all hell broke loose. That morning, the ship's cook, Alf Simpson, was up at 5.30 to get Brecky on the go. 44 years old, he was a family man, solid with curly hair and one of those faces made for smiling. He liked a joke. Someone remembers that he'd load your plate with food and if you complained, he'd say, just leave what you can't manage. Then, if you went back to the galley with any skerrick left untouched, He'd say, what, don't you like my cooking? Like I said, loved a joke. Around eight, Alf looked up and spat out a few choice words as his pots crashed off the stove when the ship lurched suddenly to the side. Seaman Cliff Langford, in after his shift steering on the bridge, had just finished breakfast and grabbed a cup of tea when he was pitched out of the galley. Strike a bloody light! Thank God for the door frame keeping him aboard. He went back in to refill his cuppa. The sudden roll of the ship had gone unnoticed by some of the crew still dozing. In his bunk, Stan Taz Leary had retired for a smoke and a snooze when he heard his clock fall over. Confused, he stood it up again and rolled back over. And Mick Dolman? was out like a light in his narrow, low bunk. I felt some pressure on me pushing me up against the bulkhead, which is the, the outer ship. Just minutes later, Tasleary's clock was thrown, clattering across the floor. And so was Mick. But this time it threw me out of the bunk and I landed on the deck and um, looked at the porthole and it was just all water, which meant... We were submerged, and the ship didn't come back. In the galley, Cliff Langford abandoned his cuppa. He looked over at Alf and said, It looks like she's going to go right over this time. They scramble through the crew quarters, past where Mick and Taz are in their cabins, and are the first up on deck, now almost completely tipped over. I remembered watching movies about ships sinking and what always feared me was having the water pouring into your alleyway and companionways and into your cabin and that's what I was thinking about. I thought this is sinking and this water is going to come in here and drown me. Adrenaline was pumping through Mick's body, numbing the cold even though he's in nothing but the jocks he went to bed in. He has one thought survival. Water was pouring into my cabin. It was just under my knee and rising very, very fast. So I took off in the alleyway and water coming the other way, pushing me back. It seemed like there were a thousand things happening. I've seen Malcolm McCarroll in the laundry. Someone had left the porthole open and water was pouring in. Malcolm McCarroll, who'd also been thrown from his bunk moments earlier, had seen water gushing in and was now trying desperately to get the porthole closed, water cascading around him. I looked at Malcolm. I think he, he, he was looking in the mirror because uh, we both were in absolute shock and uh, he, 
he was white and I'm pretty sure I was white too with fear and trepidation about where was all this going to go we never said a word to each other we didn't need to we looked at each other which seemed like forever but it wasn't it was only a couple of seconds or more and we just shook heads and uh, said upstairs let's get out of here it's gone then took off so I climbed up on the companionway and by this time the ship is at a 90 degrees you're basically walking on the wall Getting out on deck meant clinging onto anything they could find and hauling themselves up onto the outside of the ship's hull to join Cliff and Al, where they could finally stand up. If you've got a ship, just turn it on the side. So the starboard side was all submerged and the port side was out of the water but was slowly getting filled with water by the stern. Tassie Leary, who was the bosun, it's like a foreman in maritime terms, was endeavouring to get the life raft away. With limited success, a tiny peg holding it on was swollen, jamming it in place. With the seconds ticking away, Taz, any hint of sleep long gone, his clock drowned and forgotten in his cabin, looks around desperately for something, anything. Malcolm McCarroll thrusts a piece of wood at him. Taz grabs it and starts belting the raft. By this time, most of the crew were up with Mick and Malcolm, watching as Taz wrestles with the only thing that can save them. If they end up in the cold water with nothing, their time left will be counted in minutes. All I can think of is what a miserable way to go. Freezing cold water, a pair of jockets on, nothing else. Finally, the pin releases. Tassie did get it out of its cradle and then he threw it into the ocean and started pulling on the painter. It's a long cord and he's pulling it and it's, it's got a gas canister in the body and when you get to the end of the rope, you give it a big pull and it ignites this cylinder and the raft fully inflated. There's always what worries that they not do it properly and you'd lose your life raft. So we were really, really worried as Tassie was getting to the end of the tether and he pulled it. My world is about to disappear from under me. And I'm, I'm off. I was convinced that I was, I was gone. Well, we all would be gone until we seen the, the life raft come into life. Bright orange, circular with a tent-like rubber canopy over it. Mick had never seen anything so beautiful. But the poop deck where the life raft was sits right over the propeller. And with the engine still going, it's still turning. Once you get into the water, you just get churned up by the propeller. John Eagles was the chief engineer. When the ship started going over, he raced down into the bowels of the sinking ship. If the chief engineer hadn't gone down to the engine room and shut the engine down, we would have been killed. Eagles emerged up on deck, an inch-wide burn, the length of his lower left leg. So that bit of work was a brave, brave move. He'd done a marvellous job. The men pile into the life raft, leaping from their sinking ship. 
I had the painter, which is a rope, that's the cue as the life raft, to the ship. I was endeavouring to cut the rope off because the last thing we wanted to do was have a rope wrapped around our around the ship and drag our life raft with it. So I was preparing to get the painter clear and they're all all them everyone's saying, hurry up, get it off, get it off, go. And the more they harassed me to get it off, the more I tried and the harder it bloody got. And then we realised that we had, we've got one crew member short. Ken Jones, the chief officer. Ken was down in his cabin when the ship started listing. Realising what was happening, he raced to the door, but couldn't push it open because of the weight of water on the other side. He was trapped. Heart racing. He just had to wait, watching water pouring into his cabin, filling up higher and higher as the ship went down. Finally, surrounded by water, the pressure equalised and he could force his way through. But everything was underwater. He took a deep breath and swam for it. He swam out of the poop deck and we pulled him on board and got the painter clear and then the ship lifted it up and sunk by the stern. It was one of the most spectacular sights I've ever seen uh, with the ship rising out of the water with the bow up in the air and the accommodation just just slipped away. Not any resemblance of anything on the surface, nothing at all. We were probably 30 metres max from that ship. We said, well, thank Christ that that ship didn't fall our way and clean us up on the way through. It had been just half an hour since Alf dished up breakfast to Cliff in the galley, 15 minutes since Mick was thrown from his bunk, and all of it is gone. You don't think about the bravery of it all, you think about survival and what's got to be done and keep a clear head. Don't panic. I mean, good advice, but it's hard to deliver that until you're in that circumstance and you do think clearly, you do the right things, you do whatever is needed to get yourself and your colleagues out of that circumstance or situation. When we all got clear of the vessel and we're in the life raft, we're chattering away like school kids in the raft, just talking about how lucky we are that we didn't go down with that ship. The 10 crew had all made it out alive and sat shoulder to shoulder in this raft about the size of a two- or three-man tent. I can just imagine the adrenaline-fueled boyish grins as they whooped in the face of the death they'd just escaped. How good was that? What was this? What was that? I asked the captain, did we get the portable radios? No. Did we get a mayday? No. Does anybody know where we're going? No. Then the reality sort of sinks back into you. This is going to be a much more serious set of circumstances that we're in, that we're still in a bit of shit. This is Expanse, from the dead. And we didn't, uh, at that time, realise just what's ahead of us. We were soon to find out. This season of ABC's Expanse podcast is hosted by me, Pia Wursu. 
My producer and sound engineer is the amazing Grant Walter. Executive producer is Blythe Moore. Senior producer is me. With thanks to Liz Gwynn and Helen Shield for additional production and research. Acknowledging the traditional owners of the land this podcast is produced on, the Stony Creek Nation and Awapagal Country. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. That was Expanse from the Dead. To hear all five episodes of the podcast, you can search Expanse from the Dead on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.